One of the downsides of learning about miracles, like the miracles we've been seeing in the book of Joshua, is the danger of us coming to believe that God is only at work if we're seeing miracles. And if that's true, then it means that if we're not seeing miracles, then maybe God's not at work. Now, we all want to see miracles, right? I mean, imagine if God's people prayed and God gave the Ukrainian army an extended day in which they could have complete victory over the Russian military. And and God sent a tremendous hailstorm that just knocked those Russian helicopters right out of the sky and smashed all the Russian tanks that are on the ground. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Or imagine if God's people marched around Washington, D.C., and at the end of a week, God suddenly made all of the ungodly plans and policies that some of our leaders have put forth just made them totally collapse and disappear. I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that I hope that the Capitol building and our institutions would collapse, not at all. Just the ungodly plans and policies that we see there in Washington sometimes, those plans and policies that don't reflect how God has called us to live in the world with justice and truth and love and mercy. We would love to see miracles like that, wouldn't we? It'd be really amazing. Miracles are what we want. Miracles are what it is that we are looking for. But see, here's the thing. That's not what God is looking for. We're going to talk about that this morning. We are in the midst of a series from the Old Testament book of Joshua, a book that tells us how the Israelites entered and then claimed the land of Canaan, a book that shows us how God was faithful to fulfilling one of the great promises that he made to Abraham, the promise of a great homeland for all of his descendants. It's a book that's full of miracles. And it's a book that God has designed to still speak to us today. And so this morning, we are going to see Joshua and the Israelites face their biggest military threat so far. We are going to learn the secret to Joshua's success as Israel's leader. And here's a hint. It wasn't miracles. And along the way, that we are going to discover What's most important for us if we are going to successfully live in our beautiful but broken world? So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, uh, grab one of those red Bibles in front of you. And in those red Bibles, we're going to start on page 346, which is Joshua 11. Now, last week, we saw Joshua and the Israelites face a daunting challenge. An alliance of five armies was assembled by Adonai Zedek, who was the Canaanite king of Jerusalem. 
representing the southern portion of Canaan. These armies were a legitimate threat to Joshua and the Israelites. But God secured Joshua's success, his victory, through a series of miracles. God threw the Canaanite armies into confusion. He sent a deadly hailstorm, and he extended the day so that Joshua's victory over the southern Canaanites would be complete. But as formidable as these southern Canaanite kings were, what they were able to muster together is going to be dwarfed by what Joshua and the Israelites will have to face from the north. This is the battle that's going to come next. This is going to be the final climactic showdown between Joshua and the Israelites and all of the Canaanites who remain steadfast in resisting Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God that we learn about in our scriptures. And so let's look at the text. And our text this morning begins by describing this northern coalition that is formed. Verse 1, Joshua chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, meaning the successful conquest of, the, of southern Canaan, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in the Naphath door on the west. To the Canaanites in the, wheat, in the east and in the west, to the Amorites, to the Hittites, to the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites living below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sands on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. So this is going to be the biggest, most prepared Canaanite army that Joshua and the Israelites have faced so far. Not only is this force larger than what they faced in the south, it is also a more professional force than what Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, had assembled. The central power behind this northern coalition was uh, Jabin, who was the king of Hazor. Hazor, his city, was located north of the Sea of Galilee. At the time, it was larger and more significant than Jerusalem. It was a powerhouse, both commercially and militarily. And King Jabin's power and influence is evident by his ability to gather so many Canaanite kings from the north and from the west as well as from the east to join him in this effort. And that Jabin's coalition includes a large number of horses and chariots suggests that his army was made up of, or at least included, professional soldiers. See, up to this point, most of the battles that Joshua and the Israelites would have fought would have been against the equivalent of citizen militias, farmers, merchants, other common folk who'd been hastily organized in order to fight in a time of need. But it seems that King Jabin here has the resources and the ability to train and employ professional soldiers who are proficient with horses and chariots, which would have been the most advanced military technology in their day. 
while deadly in wide open spaces. These chariots would not have operated well in rough terrain. And so King Jabin is very intentional about choosing a field of battle that favors his forces. He chooses a riverbed that was dry most of the year, known as the Waters of Merom. It was a place where the horses and chariots would be able to move freely on the valley floor. And so the author of this text conveys the significance of what Joshua and the Israelites are facing, describing the Canaanite forces as a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so this is what stands before Joshua and the Israelites. They'd won a great, a great battle in the south, but this army that they were looking at now was bigger and more dangerous than what they'd faced before. But of course, God had promised Abraham that this land, that all of this land, would become the great homeland of his descendants one day. A promise that God had repeated to Isaac and to Jacob and then to Moses and then to Joshua as well. And so on the eve of this final climactic battle, the battle that would decide the control of Canaan, God came to Joshua again. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So despite the size of the army that had gathered against him, despite the Canaanites' superior numbers and military technology, God continues to tell Joshua not to be afraid. He promises Joshua that in a single day, all according to God's plan and promises, that they will defeat this vast, advanced Canaanite army. Well, Once again, Joshua trusts and obeys what God has told him. Rather than waiting to see what the Canaanites are going to do, Joshua engages them, even taking them by surprise. Look at verse 7. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Misrephoth, Maim, into the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and he burned their chariots. Joshua trusted and obeyed God. Verse 10, at that time Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And he burned Hazor itself. So Joshua and the Israelites, they decisively defeat King Jabin in this northern alliance. The Canaanite armies, they are pursued and struck down. Their chariots are burned. Their horses are hamstrung, never to be used in battle again. Hazor, the king of uh, King Jabin's city, it's treated just like Jericho was. It was totally devoted to God through its complete destruction of everyone and everything. Now, objectively speaking, 
This victory in the north is more impressive than Joshua's victory in the south over Adonai Zedek and his alliance of five armies. But you might have noticed that the author's telling of this northern battle is actually briefer and it's more muted. It has less detail. And probably most significantly, there's no mention of miracles. Now, certainly on some level, it is a miracle that Joshua was able to defeat this fearsome northern alliance, an alliance bigger in size, better equipped than he was. But unlike in the south, there's no special weather event. There's no divinely created confusion or supernatural extension of the calendar to explain how this victory was won. See, the text here attributes victory to something else. And yes, God is the one who assures its outcome, but it's not through miracles. It's through something else, through something more mundane, something less exciting, but not something less important. Listen to the next part of the text, for it's where we find what it is that we're looking for. Verse 12. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings, and he put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now, admittedly, we do not know much about exactly how God gave Joshua this final victory over King Jabin in this northern coalition. The text simply doesn't tell us. But what the text does emphasize is Joshua's faith and his obedience. Verse 15 is the text's summary evaluation, its final verdict on Joshua. Look at 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua knew what God expected of him. And in response, Joshua trusted and obeyed God, doing all the things that God had commanded him. So if by chance you've had any lingering questions about how God might have felt about Joshua sparing Rahab and her family at Jericho, or, or even about Joshua's decision regarding this messy treaty that they end up with, in the, with the Gibeonites, this is God's final verdict on the matter. Joshua did everything that he was supposed to, and everything that Joshua did was obedient to the law that God had given Moses. See, Joshua is somebody who has meditated deeply and consistently on the law. He's allowed it to shape how he sees things, how he thinks about things, how he responds to things. And by obeying all of it, 
It has made him very successful as Israel's leader. Now this victory over the northern Canaanite alliance, northern Canaanite alliance concludes the conquest phase of the book of Joshua. This work of conquest that had begun back at Jericho is now finally complete. And the rest of chapter 11 here reflects and summarizes all that Joshua and the Israelites have accomplished. Look at verse 16. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and he put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites uh, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Before I continue, finish in this chapter, let me, let me speak to this hardening for just a moment. The text here tells us that God hardened the Canaanites' hearts, except for the Gibeonites, of course, so that they would fight against Israel and ultimately be destroyed by it. That idea is really troubling for a lot of people, especially because it, it sounds like the Canaanites had no choice in this matter. But there's actually probably a bit more going on here than what is explained in the text. See, there are other places in the Bible as well where it talks about God hardening people's hearts so that they will not, so that they cannot respond to him any longer with repentance. But see, that's never the whole story. This hardening always, or at least almost always, takes place after a period of resistance to God. And so the person or the king or the nation has had opportunity to respond, oftentimes extended opportunity, but they remain steadfastly resistant. They persist in their disobedience. They refuse to submit to God's authority. And so God finally takes away, I'm sorry, God finally takes what they have decided and then makes it permanent. And this is what God did with all the Canaanites except, of course, for those who wanted to follow and submit, like Rahab and her family, and then, of course, the Gibeonites. We see the summary here continue, verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then the land had rest from war. The next chapter, chapter 12, 
provides us with a list of cities and kings on both sides of the Jordan River that Israel defeated in battle during this conquest. So chapter 12 is both the summary and the kind of transition point between the first phase of God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham that Canaanite would be the forever homeland of his descendants, the conquest phase, and then the next phase. See, this is not the end of the book because this land, it still needs to be divided up and then it'll need to be settled. And we're going to see how all that plays out in the coming weeks. But what I want to make sure that we do this morning is return to the central theme of chapter 11, which is Joshua's faithful obedience to God. And see, it is this obedience that is emphasized in this final climactic victory over the Canaanite armies. Here's the point. God brought about final victory in Canaan, not through miracles, but through his people when they were obeying him, especially Joshua. See, so often we, what we want, what we think we need are miracles. Sudden, dramatic, overwhelming displays of God's power that suddenly and dramatically change everything. You know, we say to God, God, if you would just do a miracle, then our country could get back on track. God, if you would just do a miracle, then my relationship with my spouse could be better. God, if you would just do a miracle, then I could respect my boss or my teachers, and I'd be more willing to work harder at my job or in my classes. We want miracles. But what God wants is our obedience. We want a quick, flashy fix. But what God wants is our trust and our faithfulness. What we are looking for and praying for miracles, what God wants is for us to know and obey his commands. God wants us to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. God wants us to love our neighbors and even our enemies. God wants us to pursue purity with our bodies and in our minds. God wants us to speak and to act with integrity, meaning what we say and saying what we mean. We want a miracle. God wants us to turn the other cheek. Be willing to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And God wants us to be doing these things, not just because he says so, but also because we are willing to believe that these are actually also the very best ways that we can live in this world. Sometimes God does bring about his plans and his purposes through miracles, but that's not usually how he works. God usually works his plans and purposes through the steady, faithful obedience of people who love and trust him 
And so do you want to see God do something special at your work? Go ahead and pray for a miracle. But more importantly, make sure that you are working like God wants you to work, that you're working hard and with integrity, both towards your supervisors supervisors and towards your clients. Do you want to see God do something in your important relationships? Go ahead, pray for a miracle. But more importantly, make sure that you are relating to others like God wants you to, in purity and faithfulness and forgiveness and with generosity. Do you want to see God do something significant in your own heart and life? Go ahead and pray for a miracle. But more importantly, make sure that you are trusting and obeying God like he wants you to. Make sure that you are loving your enemies and your neighbors, that you're submitting to authority, that you're caring for the poor and the stranger, that you're committing to being part of a local church, that you're sharing the gospel. What we usually want are miracles, but what God wants is our obedience. Because most often, it is through our obedience that God brings about his plans and his purposes for us and for this world in which we live. And we see this modeled in the life of Joshua, the leader of the Israelites. But we can actually see it even more clearly in the life of the greater Joshua that he points us towards. That is Jesus Christ. Gospels tell us that Jesus, just hours from being arrested and crucified, knowing full well what was coming, he asked his father if there could be another way. Maybe something miraculous. But then Jesus says to his father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew that even this, even what he was about to face, especially what he was about to face, was all part of this plan that he and his father had made from way back in the very beginning. And he knew that it was a good plan. He knew that it was the best plan. And so Jesus trusted and obeyed, dying in our place so that we don't have to. He trusted and obeyed God because of all the times that we have not. Table that's set here in our midst is intended to remind us of how Jesus trusted and obeyed the Father in their great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem us. A plan that climaxed at the cross where he died for our sins. The final showdown, so to speak. The Apostle Paul reminds the Romans and us that it was through the obedience of this one man, Jesus, that many are now made righteous. The bread that's on the table there reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us. The cup reminds us of his blood, which was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. 
In just a moment, Ed and I are going to distribute the elements. Uh, to all of you, you're going to see that the cups are double stacked. Take the whole stack and then hold on to them so that we can uh, share the Lord's Supper together. Um, you don't need to be a covenant member of our church in order to share the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, we just ask that you only participate if you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus. If you have pledged your love and loyalty to Jesus, share this meal with him, share this meal with us. We would love that. Otherwise, just let it go by. Um, and parents, we always leave it up to you to decide if you're, when your kids are old enough to understand and participate. But as we distribute these elements... I invite you to spend this time just to reflect on what it means to trust and to obey God in your life, in your life circumstances, in your relationships. You might be looking for miracles, but what God is looking for in your life is obedience. And so where is this hardest for you? Where do you find it most difficult to trust that God's ways are, in fact, the best ways to live? What would need to change in your heart so that you can obey him more fully like he wants you to? Maybe take this time to talk to God about some of those things. Scriptures tell us that Jesus took the bread he broke it, shared it with his followers, telling them that this bread represented his body, which was to be broken for them, broken so that we can trust him. Take and eat. We're also told that Jesus took the cup, that he blessed it, and he shared it with his followers, telling them that it represented his blood, which was about to be spilled for the forgiveness of their sins, for their sins as well as for ours, spilled so that we are now able to obey him, take and drink. Through the faith and obedience of the true and greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, we are made righteous. And so, in love and faith, follow in his footsteps, trusting and obeying the Father just like he did. Let me pray. Father, we praise and worship you for your glory, for your holiness, for your faithfulness. And we thank you again for your unending faithfulness to your great unstoppable plan to make a people for yourself and for the way in which you invited us to be included amongst those people. Jesus, we pledge our love and loyalty to you as our rescuer and as our king, as the true Joshua who responded to our cries when we asked you to save us, even when doing so would cost you your life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use these scriptures to teach and remind us of how you want us to live in this world as people who love you, who trust you, and who obey you in all things. Shape our minds and empower our hearts to live well and faithfully in our beautiful but broken world. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.